Morning, Bethel. Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We'll be reading the whole chapter. That's verses 1 to 24. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 962. So 1 Corinthians 16, 1 to 24, page 962 in the Pew Bible. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. All right, starting in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me. For I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanas and Fortunatus and Achaeus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and, Pr- and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Good morning, Bethel. All right. Well, we are uh, coming to the conclusion, close to the end of our series through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we've titled this series Cruciform Living. Uh, So if you're here for the first time, what does that mean? Cruciform is not a word you probably hear too often, but you can probably figure out what it means. It means in the shape of the cross, right? So Our lives, we need, as Christians, we need our lives to be formed around the cross where Jesus is at the center of our lives and we see the implications for all of life. 
And when the cross is at the center, it actually shapes who we are. It shapes how we talk, how we think, how we decide, um, our values, our perspectives, our priorities, all of that. We need that. Um, so we're all going to be shaped by something. We're all going to be shaped by something, someone. Uh, and the shape and pattern of our lives reflects what we value, what is precious to us, what matters. So as human beings, it takes no effort at all for our lives to be shaped by selfishness and pride. That's pretty natural for us. We're spring-loaded for that. Um, we're really good at living for ourselves and doing what makes us look good. It's really easy to evaluate others on the basis of what they can do for us, which again is a selfish perspective. It takes power, on the other hand, not to get sucked in and conformed to that way of thinking. Um, that's why Paul wrote, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal, renewal of your mind. He wrote that in Romans chapter 12. So it takes something radical to transform us, and only the power of the gospel can do that. Only the cross of Christ is the power of God um, to change us. So when we trust Jesus as our Savior, when we follow him and not the Pied Pipers of the world, the cross shapes us. Jesus shapes us by his grace. So the book of 1 Corinthians is all about the cross. The cross is at the center because Paul knows he knew that his readers, the church in Corinth, needed the cross to be at the center of their lives. They needed to see how much they had been shaped by the world, and they needed to see how much the cross needed to shape them instead. Um, and we need the same thing. Sometimes we can be blind to it. So the word is like a mirror to see our selfishness and our pride, see how we're shaped by other things rather than by the priorities of the cross. Um, so this morning we're going to look at chapter 16, the last chapter of the book. We do actually have one more week to go in 1 Corinthians because we skipped over chapter 11, verses 17 to 34, second half of that chapter, because it's all about the Lord's Supper. And so we figured we'd do that on a Sunday where we're actually participating in the Lord's Supper. So application right there um, after the message. So that'll be next week, and then we'll be on to some other things. So um, here we go. So Tyler read the, the chapter already, right? It's the last chapter, you know, some greetings, some travel plans and whatnot. Um, might be tempted to look at this as like a throwaway chapter, right? You're maybe daily Bible reading, this comes up, and you kind of like speed up a little bit and get on to the next book. You know, kind of an obligatory ending to an interesting letter. You know, there's lots of interesting things in it. But actually, it is filled, and I, I saw this with much greater clarity this week as I've studied it. Um, it is filled with cruciform concerns and exhortations. They're explicit and they're implicit in what Paul says. There is a lot of cross-centered theology underneath his travel plans and the collection for the poor saints and the other things that he says. So it is like a cruciform living exclamation point at the end of this letter. In fact, I think it's really interesting that that kind of theology is very clearly tied to all these details, the stuff that we would often view as normal, kind of mundane details. And I think that's evidence that for Paul, everything is theological, which it is. 
whether we recognize it or not. It's just a matter of whether or not it's going to be good theology guiding all of who we are and what we do. So everything needs to be run through the grid of the gospel. Paul exemplifies this here, and it's something that we need to learn. So this chapter can be really helpful. So let me just you know, show you how important we need to be shaped all the way down at the core of who we are. So let's say suffering hits. Maybe you can think back on a situation where it has in the past. Maybe it's right in your face right now. Let's say suffering hits. Is your first reaction, has your first reaction ever been, what did I do to deserve this? It's a pretty common reaction, isn't it? So what does that say about what has shaped you if that's your knee-jerk reaction? Do you really believe in karma? Like, is karma shaping you? Or you could say, do you really believe that you're that good? What did I do to deserve this implies I actually deserve better than this. Do you really want to get what you deserve? Or do you really believe God owes you a good life, however you define that, whatever that means? Do you really believe God may have made a mistake that he doesn't have purpose and plans for this suffering? So do you see how, you know, we can talk about our, you know, decisions that we really have time to wrestle with them and, and, and that needs to be shaped by the cross too. But even our instincts and our reactions, our knee-jerk reactions and the stuff underneath them need to be shaped by the cross all the way down to the core of who we are. Intuition even needs to be shaped by the cross. And so let's just prayerfully approach this chapter. I mean, all of us, the whole way throughout, like just we need help, Lord, as we study through this because we need such a transformation. We need to be shaped by the cross all the way down at the core of who we are. All the nooks and crannies, all the details. So let's dive in. First point here, there's, um, there'll be slides, there's an outline in your bulletin as well, if that's helpful to follow along that way. So Paul starts off here and he talks about a collection. So let's look at verses 1 to 4 where he calls the Corinthians to put their money where their mouth is. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So I've heard this lots of times. This passage is often used to give guidelines for giving in the church. And it's not that it has nothing to say to that, but there are other passages that are more central to the whys and the hows of Christian giving. Um, this one is uniquely tied to a very specific situation. And again, it doesn't mean that it's not applicable to us. We'll see that it is, but it might be slightly different than you would expect. So a little background's important here. It's necessary, so don't check out here <laughs> or you'll miss the point. So many of you know that there was a significant Jew-Gentile gentile, <laughs> gentile, gentile divide in the first century, right? 
So, for instance, in Ephesians 2, Paul describes this divide and how the gospel is supposed to remove it by saying that there was this dividing wall of hostility that Jesus tore down so that he could make peace. Vertical peace, reconciliation with God, and then horizontal peace, oneness in the body of Christ, Jew and Gentile, like all peoples. So at the time, again, Jews viewed Gentiles as unclean, even spoke of them as dogs. And Paul is concerned about this divide because God's concerned about this divide because God cares about a kind of unity that Jesus died to win. He died to ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So he died to make them all one in Christ where there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Okay, So when Paul's carrying out his mission to the Gentiles, that's what he's called to, right? Primarily. He's thinking of how he can promote and build the unity with Jews and Gentiles. So at the time, there was a famine that had hit, and it hit Jerusalem particularly hard, and the Christians in Jerusalem were suffering in poverty. So with his collection, Paul seeks to both help meet the needs of the poor Christians in Jerusalem and make a meaningful investment in Jew-Gentile unity from the churches that he planted, collecting from them, to deliver that as a gift to the poor Jerusalem believers. So for the Corinthians to participate in that collection is a way for them to put their money where their mouth is. What's one of the first problems that we encounter when you start reading this book? A lack of unity. There's all these factions and whatnot in the Corinthian church. Gospel unity was a problem. So this is a good test. This is a good application of are they going to be shaped by the cross or by their own selfishness? So this would be like today a Palestinian Arab Christian church collecting money to give to poor Israeli Christians. You know, they don't typically get along too well. Sadly, even Christians. Or how about a predominantly white suburban church outside of Montgomery, Alabama 50 years ago taking a collection to give to a needy black church in the city. I actually bring up those examples on purpose because you can see how it could be a huge statement of unity and equality. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. It would be putting your money where your mouth is, but you can also see how it could easily backfire. Can you see that? Like how it could go really bad, like in a bunch of different ways. So, for instance, with Paul, the Gentiles, the Corinthians could be indifferent and not respond. Or Paul could promise a gift and then be humiliated because the Gentiles don't carry through with their promise. There were no wire transfers back then. There's no, like, online banking, you know. So this money would have to be taken in valuable coinage in person through bandit-ridden country, and how are the Corinthians going to be able to verify that it actually all got there? I mean, how would they know that Paul isn't lining his pockets? And then once it did get there, who's to say that the poor Jerusalem Christians wouldn't scoff and say, we don't need your charity? Unclean dogs trying to help us? Not even circumcised. We don't want your patronizing help. So if that was their reaction, can you imagine the backlash back in Corinth? <laughs> like what that would do for Jew-Gentile relations? 
Oh, great, now it's worse off than when we started. But on the other hand, if the Gentile Christians caught the vision and embraced it wholeheartedly, and if the poor Jerusalem Christians recognized this gift as evidence that God's grace was spreading over the whole earth, then there would be this wonderful potential for unity and partnership and mutual thanksgiving and praise to God. So this is a strategic gift that Paul is collecting, but it is high risk, high reward. (laughs) And Paul is doing everything he can to avoid unnecessary problems. So he doesn't want it to feel like a tax collector comes to town when he gets to, to Corinth. You see, he says, set it aside so that there will be no collecting when I come. I don't want to give that feel here. I want it to be a willing thing that comes from your heart. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 8 9, he's addressing this issue some more, and he writes in chapter 9, verse 5, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So he's concerned with their hearts, their motivation in their giving. He wants them to be willing, cheerful givers, right? And us too. Again, if the cross shapes us, that is our perspective on giving. He wants it to be a willing gift, pulled together on their own, under no pressure or external compulsion. That is a heart shaped by the gospel. The gospel says we give because he first gave to us. Is that how you give? Cheerful. You see how it's cheerful? It's not like, oh, do I have to give on the, on the gross or can I get away with the net? Wait. Good thing God wasn't calculating like that. I mean, so we give because he first gave to us. So notice also how Paul speaks to how it will be delivered. Again, he's concerned about these problems. He wants to guard against them cropping up. So verse 3, when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter, letter of recommendation, to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So he actually is suggesting to the Corinthians that they should decide upon some worthy couriers from their own people. There's all kinds of wisdom in this. This is cross-centered wisdom here. First, he's guarding against accusation that he might be lining his pockets because their people are with him to keep him accountable. And secondly, he's, he's setting up a more personal connection that could facilitate this unity that he's after. It's one thing if Paul brings the gift to the Corinth, to, from the Corinthians to the Jerusalem Christians and says, hey, this is from the Corinthians. It's another thing if a few Corinthians bring the gift And then the Jerusalem Christians get to know the Corinthian brothers and sisters and hear their testimonies and are like, wow, God's really done this. We we can't hold them off at arm's length. We're brothers and sisters. And then those Corinthian brothers and sisters get to know the Jerusalem saints and take back their firsthand experience of their unity in Christ. And what a beautiful thing it becomes, right? So Paul wants the Corinthian Christians to value gospel unity. Isn't it cool in the details of a collection There's a cross-centered perspective that's shaping Paul, and he wants it to shape the Corinthians, and God wants us to be shaped by that same perspective. So there was plenty of selfish, worldly factionalism among the Corinthians. We can do the same thing. They needed to be shaped by the cross. It's true for us, too. I mean, (laughs) we don't need any help in 
creating divides and factions and cliques and whatnot, do we? Like, just Don't just look out there. I know our world is divided. The church is so divided. But stop and look in. You walk into a room, let's say at a business meeting or a neighborhood get-together or even a church thing or whatever. Where did you learn to size up the room? And like pretty quickly decide who you want to talk to and who you want to avoid. And what's driving those decisions? That's pretty natural. We need to be shaped down at the core of who we are by the cross. The gospel cuts that kind of partiality off at the knees. Because what's the gospel all about? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The ground is level at the foot of the cross because we are all guilty. Nobody's better than anybody else. This isn't a meritocracy. We all need Jesus. We all need a Savior. And when we really get that, we don't look down on others. Old divides break down because new creation unity is being built up. So if we really believe in it, we are willing to put our money where our mouth is. And actually, I just I thought of this example. I think this is so encouraging. We did this. By God's grace, we did this recently. Epiphany Fellowship, we were able to give them something like $26,000. So you could, Bethel, you could easily have thought, oh, we've got enough to worry about with our ailing building, you know, and broken pipes out front, and whatever, you know, like, no. Or, you know, what is so prevalent among privileged majority folk, we could be inhibited by foolishly judgmental thoughts, or we could be blind to our privilege and the very real challenges that ministries in the city face that we do not face. So I'm really thankful that I think our church joyfully participated, like wanted the opportunity to partner, and we will continue to, with Epiphany Fellowship as they seek to plant in the city in some of the toughest neighborhoods. So are we our brother's keeper? Yes. Yes, we are. And we embrace that willingly. So if we value gospel unity, we must put our money where our mouth is. So it's another application of cruciform living following our crucified Savior and Lord. Because listen, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, I love this. This is the gospel in a nutshell. Again, he gave, we, we can give because he first gave to us. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So aren't you glad that God put his grace riches where his mouth was, right? He put his money where his mouth was. He put the riches of his mercy and his grace where his mouth was. It's not empty talk when it comes to God. And when we know that grace, then we are empowered to give that grace. We put our money where our mouth is. So Paul moves on now to explain his travel plans. And again, once again, we're probably tempted to just, write, just blow right by this, move on, but slow down and see how the cross even shapes Paul's travel plans and should shape our plans too. 
So verses 5 to 9. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend, that's a humble word, to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. So do you see how Paul's will is subject to God's will? He says, I intend, perhaps, if the Lord permits. This is just what James says in in chapter 4. You remember it? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. The cross has shaped Paul. It has produced this humility. He's not the Lord. Jesus is. So he will make plans, but ultimately they're subject to the guidance and direction of the Lord. Paul has died to his own will. So the cross crucifies our selfish will and our pride and subjects us to the will and plans of God. I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I'm yielded, submitted to the will of my Lord Jesus. So Paul also, he he practices what he preaches. Remember back in chapter 6, he says, your life is not your own, you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Well, again, Paul knows his life is not his own. So the cross shapes even his travel plans. The lordship of Christ shapes the way that he talks about his travel plans. So again, this isn't just historical lesson. This is for us as well. You see how the cross needs to shape our every aspect of life. Do you want God to bless your plans? Or have you been crucified with Christ and you're living the cruciform life yielded to God's will? I heard this quote this week, prayer is not about getting your will done in heaven. It's about getting God's will done on earth. Or to turn it just a little bit to see the same point with a slightly different application, how do you respond when God changes your plans? Like interrupts what you have planned. Oftentimes, anger, frustration, irritation gets kicked up, and that's our pride going public. That's the stuff that needed crucified in the Corinthians' hearts, and it needs crucified in ours too, so that we can be guided by love, because love is not easily angered or irritable, because, again, I've been crucified with Christ. Christ lives in me. He's the Lord. I'm not. So when God changes your plans, trust and dependence and waiting on the Lord are gospel humility gone public. That's cruciform living, living that says, Jesus is Lord, I'm not. So one other way that we see Paul's cruciform perspective in his travel plans is found in verses 8 and 9. Look look there now. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and... 
there are many adversaries. Is that how you view things? Would you have put a different word, connecting word in there? Doors are opening for fruitful gospel work, and there are many adversaries. So if we don't have a cross-shaped perspective, we're not going to evaluate life like this. We're not going to live like this. We'd be more inclined to flip it on its head and say, ooh, there are many adversaries, so the door must be closed. Have you ever faced opposition to your faith at work and concluded maybe you should look for another job? Maybe that's the opportunity under fire to show the supernatural grace of God on display. Why why would you run from that? Now, again, there could be a million reasons why it might be the right thing, but not if we're running from opposition when there's an opportunity. So there are dangers and risks to going on a short-term missions trip, or moving into the city to help Epiphany get planted. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, necessarily. I mean, are we only going to send people to comfortable, safe places? Are we only going to go to safe places? We need to embrace a cruciform perspective here. Jesus laid down his life to save us. If we want to follow him, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. If we try to save our life, save our safety, our comfort, our reputation, we will lose our lives. But if we lose our life and our safety and comfort and reputation for his sake in the Gospels, we will find our life. So Jim Elliott got it right. He is no fool who gives or even risks what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So there's more here, more cruciform living perspective. Again, this chapter is like a big cross-shaped exclamation point at the end of this letter. And Paul goes on to show how the cross relates next to to the way that they relate to leaders. So look at verse 10. It's point number three. So when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. So it's always a little dangerous to read between the lines. We have to be careful with that. We're not totally sure why Paul needed to say this, but we can certainly imagine some scenarios why, right? I mean, could it be because Timothy is a bit more meek and humble? That's kind of his personality somewhat, but it's also God's grace in him if you read Philippians 2. But maybe he's also given to timidity if you read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. And what did the Corinthians prize? Impressive, forceful personalities who appear to be in control. So Timothy's going to show up and, you know, if they're still valuing the same things and not shaped by the cross, they might tend to despise Timothy or just be dismissive of him. So you can almost imagine Paul sending Timothy on purpose to the Corinthians as a test almost. Like how they receive Timothy would be a way for them to prove they've learned the lessons he's shared with them in earlier chapters. It's it's also possible that it could be since this letter could sting quite a bit when they receive it, some challenging things he says to them, they might be tempted to take out their irritation or embarrassment or whatever 
with Paul and Paul's associate. Again, we don't know totally, but we do know that despising a faithful servant like Timothy would be to continue to allow worldly values to shape them. So a cross-centered life means that you honor those who follow our crucified Savior, even if it's countercultural. Okay, so just to give you like an, an example of how this could look in our day and age, and again, maybe this is far cry from our experience, but again, just seeing how it could work can help you see how we need to be shaped similarly. Imagine a church plant in New York City, planted by a guy who's traveled the world, he's comfortable in an urban setting, and imagine that the New York City church plant is dealing with worldly values similar to the one plaguing the church in Corinth, right? Imagine that the man who planted the church, he sends on purpose a younger man from Arkansas. No, nothing against Arkansas people, okay? But somebody from Arkansas who's got a simple, sincere faith and, and has fruitfulness in his wake, he's a faithful worker, to encourage the church in New York City before going on to his next assignment. Can you imagine how that might go? How they might tend to... (laughs) Redneck. The way he talks. So again, are we going to be conformed to this world or transformed by the power of the gospel, shaped by the cross of Christ? Let's keep going here. Verse 15, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. Again, we've seen already that the Corinthians had real issues with selfishness and pride. It's the opposite of the Calvary Road. Humility and other-centered service and love is what the cross shapes. So Paul is seeking to shape them here as well. It's pretty possible that this trio, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, are the ones that actually brought the letter of concerns to Paul that Paul responded to. Now concerning this, now concerning this, that you wrote to me, right? So it probably means that those three guys were okay with the church in Corinth. Like, these are good messengers, we're going to send them. They had rapport with... Corinth. Like, we like these guys. So this is actually an opportunity for Paul to encourage them by lifting up the example of these men. The household, men and women probably, the household of Stephanus, they are devoted to the service of the saints. So that household, Paul is intentionally lifting them up because they are humble and servant-hearted. They're living the cruciform life, following their Savior who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They're heeding the words of Jesus that was so countercultural. Remember in Mark 10, he said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. So you can imagine in the Corinthians' pride, they might be inclined to judge their leaders rather than submit to them. So Paul calls them to put their follow Jesus money where their mouth is by subjecting themselves to their leaders, leaders who are devoting themselves to the service of the saints. 
The second exhortation is to give recognition to such leaders. Do you see that there? The point is not to raise these people up on a pedestal. The point is that their value should be shaped by the gospel, not by the world. And the way that it works out is who do you honor? Who do you show honor to? We're all going to honor somebody. So they showed honor. They should show honor to those who are truly honorable in God's eyes, not get stars in their eyes over people who are impressive in the world's eyes and then dismiss and disdain those who are faithful servants of Christ. Okay, so again, everything is shaped by the cross for Paul, and he wants to do the same for the Corinthians, and we need it too. And it's reinforced even more, point number four in verse 12, and then in the last six verses of the chapter, because he's trying to promote the kind of unity that only the cross can produce. So let's look at point four now, verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come. He will come when he has opportunity. What's going on here? Again, we just tempted to blow right by this. Turn to Acts 18. Just track with me here. Acts 18, verse 24. Who was Apollos? Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John initially. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, Achaia is the region, Corinth is one of the cities in that region, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now, remember back at the beginning of 1 Corinthians and the factions? Back in chapter 1, I appeal to you, brothers, verse 10, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Okay. So can you imagine the Apollos faction saying, Paul's not such an impressive speaker. I mean, do you see how Apollos can argue? And then, why isn't Paul, like, you can imagine them just reading between the lines, like reading, interpreting the silence. Why hasn't Apollos shown up? Oh, you know what? He's with Paul. I wonder, Paul's probably trying to keep him away. He's probably trying to win more votes for Team Paul. That's probably what's going on. Party spirit, right? And, and they're projecting their immaturity on Paul and assuming that maybe that's what he's doing. All that just gets undercut here. Paul and Apollos are on the same team. Paul's not threatened by him at all. In fact, Paul encouraged him to go visit the Corinthians. But it wasn't Apollos' will at the time to do so. 
So do you see how this is such a kind of a seemingly offhanded comment, like, what's that there for? And again, Paul is trying to produce the kind of unity that only the cross can produce. Paul's not threatened. They're on the same team. They're both on team Jesus. So any gain in Apollos' ministry is something Paul can rejoice in because it's all about the kingdom of Christ coming and gaining ground. So Paul continues to beat the drum of unity in the final six verses of the chapter. So look down there with me. The Corinthians need to be reminded that they're not the center of the world. They thought way too highly of themselves. So he is showing them that they're a part of something much bigger than themselves. They're a small part of a larger body of Christ, and that needs to shape them. Look at verse 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, short form of Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That makes sense for the Italians among us, maybe the Argentinians. You know, it's too bad that Chris and Ozzy aren't here for you know, kind of living illustration afterwards. Um, so we have other socially acceptable forms, you know, today. But in certain cultures, that's very normal, you know, like my Italian grandma, you know, like, okay, great, love you too. So greet one another with a holy kiss, holy kiss. Can, can you imagine how factualism and a spiritual caste system would prevent that expression of unity? I'm not going to kiss that person. Ugh. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Remember chapter 13, there were people, you know, oh, you can think you're so spiritual, speak in the tongue of men and angels, but if you don't have love, it's worthless. They need to be warned of the danger they're in if that's who they are, some of the folks in Corinth. So the end of verse 22, our Lord comments the Aramaic phrase Maranatha. If you love the Lord, you love and long for his appearing. You can't wait for his kingdom to come in fullness. So our Lord, come. You eagerly await his coming. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul said in Philippians 3, and from it we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, oh, how that needs to shape our desires. This world is not our home. We can't try to make heaven on earth. We are eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus when he's going to set everything right. And then we'll really be home. And then he closes verses 23 and 24 with, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So that warning, you know, to those who have no love for the Lord, it had to be given. But where Paul really wants to end is with grace and love. He wants the grace of the Lord Jesus, the power of the gospel to be with them, shaping and molding them into the image of Jesus. He wants them to know how much he loves them, even as he exhorts them to love as they've first been loved by God through Christ, even as he said some really hard things to them. He said them in love. So we finish now in the middle of the chapter. Did you notice we skipped some verses? Um, with the exhortations that we skipped over there because they're actually at the heart of Paul's closing thoughts. So look up at verses 13 to 14. He wants us to be lovers and fighters. It's not an either, either or, folks. You guys know that expression? You still awake? I'm a lover, not a fighter. Okay, 
Everybody tracking? Awake? Okay, good. Um, Verse 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. So the Lord Jesus is coming. History is going somewhere. We need to be alert and awake and watchful. We can't afford to get spiritually sleepy. Or we will just float along in the current of the values that the world creates, right? Christians need to swim against the stream, not get carried along by it. So we've got to be watchful and alert so that we can stand firm in the faith. We are in a spiritual battle. The devil will not give up ground easily. If you and I, if we are living cruciform lives, it means the kingdom of Jesus is advancing. The light is shining, previewing the new day, the dawn that's coming. Satan wants to extinguish that light and spread darkness instead. He wants us to be conformed to this world and shaped by selfishness and pride. So if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to embrace cruciform living, expect opposition within struggles and without. So we've got to be watchful. We've got to stand firm in the faith, which means we've got to know the faith. We've got to really take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we must act like men and be strong. So what does that mean, act like men? Is he talking about everybody? Act like men? Well, it's possible that he meant act like men in contrast to the childishness that is characterizing them. Remember back in chapter 3, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. And then later, chapter 14, he says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. In other words, you guys need to grow up. So that might be what he's referencing, but it's more likely that this actually is echoing some Old Testament connotations. This word is used only once in the New Testament, this act like men word, but it's used a bunch of times in the Old Testament, 22 or 23. And one of the places where act like men and be strong is used is Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So think about it. Where was Joshua when he heard that? ready to take the promised land, ready to conquer the land, right? Ready to bring the kingdom of God and establish it on earth. So can you see how that would be transposed in the New Testament? Be watchful against the allures and the influences of the world, the flesh and the devil. Stand firm in the faith. Don't give way for a minute to those who want to shake you from your firm footing in Christ. Act like men and be strong. There is such a thing as manliness, but it has to do with strength and courage used in the service and protection of others. That's love. So fight the good fight of the faith, Corinthians. Don't get lulled to sleep. Stay awake. Conquer the lies of the evil one. Take the quote-unquote land for the name and kingdom of Christ. But what this means is the kingdom of God advances as we bring the gospel of peace. It happens as we do all things in love. We we don't gain any ground by manipulation or coercion. This is the opposite of Islamic jihad. 
It is a holy war to be sure, but it is waged not by taking life, but by laying down our lives. As we follow our crucified Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. So, Bethel, do we embrace the message of the crucified Savior? Then we must also embrace the call, the call that he gives to his messengers, his followers, to follow him, living cruciform lives in the shape of our Savior. So let's pray, and then we're going to sing of the wonderful cross that has power to shape us. So whatever we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, travel plans or the way we relate to leaders, the way that we spend our money and give our money, whatever we do, may we do it all to your glory, Lord, because you have changed us. You have saved us. You have given so radically, generously by giving us Jesus and pouring out your mercy, the riches of your mercy and your love and your grace into our lives. May it transform us. May it shape us to every nook and cranny of our lives so that we live cruciform lives that reflect winsomely, attractively, beautifully, compellingly, the power of the cross, the wisdom of the cross, and the beauty and glory of our Savior. In his name we pray, amen.